Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Morning. In some ways, when we come to a passage, when we come to a passage like this one, we have, we have some problems to overcome because is so familiar and what it's actually saying is different from what we assume and therefore if you've got one of those little pads you might want to write down this question but I've got a question which is controversial and I'm not meaning it to be controversial well I am a little bit um, the question is this is no one lynched me is being a Christian a bit like being an Everton fan <laughs> now bear with me right bear with me so Everton is one of the biggest clubs in the world, right? Everton is currently building what will be probably one of the best stadiums in the world, almost certainly the best stadium in the UK. It has more money than almost any club in the world. In my opinion, it has some of the best fans in the world. And yet, being, what is the experience of being an Everton fan? It's not great, is it? You watch them play and... It's not an enjoyable experience, right? It's, at best, it's boring. At worst, you're watching them lose, right? And is that what it's like to be a Christian? So, you think about it, we've got this God who we know is true, who we know rules over all the universe. And yet, you open your little BBC news app, what happens to Christians? What's happened to Christians in Pakistan? Who is it who was being persecuted in Pakistan? Whose, whose places of worship, whose churches were being burnt down? It's Christians, right? Christians are the most persecuted people in the whole world. So how can it be that our God is true? You know, I, I think of it another way. You know, like if you're in school, imagine you're, I don't know, let's say you just, you started school, you're year seven, right? So you're not tall, right? Year seven. And you've got an older brother who's in year 11. He's about the same height I am, but he's like that big. And he's the hardest kid in the whole of school. No, no one uses these analogies at church. But anyway, you've got this massive, massive brother. And he's one of those who walks down the corridor and he just looks at someone and they dive out of the way. And you're getting bullied as a little year seven. And you know that all your brother has to do is literally just look at your bullies and they will stop. But he won't do it. And you think to yourself, my older brother might as well be that tall for all that matters. He might as well be the weakest kid in school. And it feels like that when we look at Mark chapter 1, because when we look at verse 15, Jesus comes and he says this. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But look at verse 14. What's happening in verse 14? Well, 
John the Baptist, who was the greatest, we, we know as the greatest prophet who ever walked on this earth, was arrested. He's in prison. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who's ever walked on this earth, is in prison. And Jesus walks onto the scene and he goes, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. How can that be the case? And I think it feels like a struggle, doesn't it, the Christian life? You know, we, we, we can feel like the John the Baptist, right? It feels like a struggle. And the question is, how, how can that be true? And the struggle often, you know, sometimes the struggle is internal, right? Sometimes the struggle is that every fibre within me wants to sin. It's, I'm selfish, right? I want what I want when I want it. I'm greedy. And yet the kingdom of God's at hand. And we face opposition. And if the opposition isn't, you know, if it's not militant extremists, then for us maybe, maybe the opposition is the HR department or the bullies at school. You know, who is it? Which religion... Do you get, are you likely to get bullied up for school? Which religion are the HR department likely to clamp down on? Which religion do you get laughed at for believing? We all know the answer, right? And if John the Baptist, who was the greatest prophet who ever walked this earth, ended up in prison, then what hope is the rest of us? What use is the rest for the rest of us as the kingdom of God? Well, I'm going to have to start with a bit of background work and that's going to rely on a PowerPoint. Now, last time I did questions, no one answered them, so I'm going to bribe people to answer them with chocolate. Um, oh, let's go back. So, the first question, we're going back to the Exodus, right? Second book of the Bible. Israel are in slavery. They're in, they're in I'm about to give away the answer. Where were Israelites enslaved at the time of Moses? Go on, Tom, you can the first one. Which country? No. Reuben? Oh! <laughs> I asked. I'm sorry, Sven. I didn't mean to hit someone with an Everton shirt on as well. Um, that wasn't in the plan. Right. Who was, who was their enemy? Right at the back, Will? Yeah. No, I'm not going to throw it that far. You're going to have to. Can I? Felicity, can you whack it to him without eating it? Thank you. Great, and where did they end up? Josh and Evan, these are your chocolate bars. I'm going to give you the chance to answer one of these questions. Where did they end up? What country, do you know? Yes, Israel. So it's called Canaan, but Israel. And how did they get there? Go, Evan. I'm sorry, I've got to give them a chance to win back their own chocolate. Yes, they did. They walked through. Do you know what they walked through? Do you know what it was? It was a desert. We call it, let's call it a wilderness. It was a desert. It was a desert. Well done, You did say it. So, what was going on? People enslaved in Egypt, wandering in the wilderness. The enemy was the Egyptians, who had enslaved them, and they headed towards a promised land called Canaan. Now, why am I putting that up? Well, so the... The Israelites, this is a danger of not doing it without any notes. The Israelites, right, however many years later, so call it AD 30, right? They're in, they're still in Israel, but at the time the Romans have occupied them. 
And the question is, will they have that second exodus right? So what they're hoping for is that that will happen again. So what they're hoping for is that they're under Roman rule. There's a promised king in the Old Testament. They see the enemies as a Roman, so ruling over their country, so it's been invaded. And they're hoping for a promised land within where they are, a new Israel, but where they are. Now, as you read Mark's Gospel, you start to get some hints that that's not how it's going to work. So, when we look at the section, verses 16 to 20, if you cast your eyes, oh sorry, verses 14 to 20, when you cast your eyes to the section before verse 20 to 13, you can see that Jesus um, is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, which Jez referred to last week, and, um, but he overcomes him. In the section afterwards, um, there's a man with an unclean spirit, a devil, right? And Jesus casts out that devil. And that, that's in verse 21 to 28. And then in verse 29, I think it's, yeah, verse 29 to 34, Jesus casts out a devil from someone again. Now, why is Mark obsessed with demons, with devils, with Satan? Because, have you ever thought, I was thinking this while I was preparing it, right? If you look at the miracle, if you look at the, like, what's going on in Mark's gospel in terms of what Jesus does, it's like, you know, he heals a man with a withered hand. Um, he, like, feeds 5,000 people. He does, you know, he, he's cleansing lepers. Now, if he wanted everyone to follow him, there was a really, really easy way of doing it where he could have got all the Jews to follow him. Right? All he needed to do, dead simple, he just rebuilds Jerusalem in a, with one miracle. The second miracle, he casts out the Romans. And he would have had the whole of Israel would have followed him and even and other, everyone from all the other countries would have looked and been amazed and probably would have come in as well. So why does he not do it? Why is he messing around healing a leper and driving out evil spirits? And the answer to that is that slide there, which is the real issue, the real issue that the people faced wasn't actually the Roman rule at all. The real issue which the people faced wasn't the circumstances which they were in at the time. It was something which was happening on a much, much bigger level. And that is this. That their enemy might have felt day to day like it was the Romans, but their enemy was really Satan. And God's people... What they were really enslaved to was sin. So the promised king comes to bring the people into a new land. But rather than this physical restoration of Jerusalem, which Jesus could have done very, very easily in a miracle, it was a spiritual restoration now and the promise of a physical restoration, which I'll come back to, the promise of a physical restoration later when Jesus comes again. Yeah, so I guess, I guess to illustrate, to illustrate why, why that matters, why it's important, just, just take an illustration of what it kind of feels like. So I've got an illustration of what, what does it feel like to have difficulties now, but they don't really matter. So think of, I'm going to use a Formula One illustration, but you don't need any knowledge of Formula One for it. It's just, I need an example of winning, right? So... If anyone watches Formula One, you'll know at the moment there's a, there's a driver called Max Verstappen. 
Now, Max Verstappen is so far ahead in the championship, it's embarrassing. He's got, I think he's, he's won 10 races in a row, which is some kind of new record. He, he, he's kind of almost, you know, taking a nap while he, he wins. He's, he's, it's very rare to see what someone with such superiority. But for Max Verstappen, there's still something goes wrong every now and again. So he'll come into the pits, and a tyre gets stuck as it's changing. And he's like that, trying to get it off. And it won't come off. And it costs him five seconds in a pit stop. And he's dead frustrated. He's dead annoyed. He's going to the pit crew. How can this be? Well, come on, you must practice this hundreds of thousands of times. How can this have delayed me five seconds? And, of course, he drives out the pits. And he's 55 seconds in the lead instead of one minute in the lead. And he ends up winning the race, winning the championship and everything. Now, on a number of levels, that, that illustration doesn't work. But what, what I'm trying to say is... We look at the issues we have, whether it's room and occupation, or whether it's the difficulties we face, the HR department, whether it's the fact that Christians get slated in the media, and we think that somehow God doesn't care. Well, I, I feel like that sometimes. God doesn't care, or God is not winning. But the truth is, those things are a sticky tire in a pit stop in a championship winning season. Because there's a much the thing that's going to win the championship, the thing which is going to make all of the difference, is the thing on the right. It's the victory against sin, the victory against Satan, because that is what delivers us to the promised land. And I guess we probably need to think at this point a little bit about Jesus' kingship. Because Jesus in verse 15 so he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now there's a command there to repent and believe. Now, when we look at verse 16 to 20, we have an example of uh, two brothers, effectively, who become disciples. So Simon and Andrew, James and John, and they follow Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't say to them, Follow me when you want. He says, follow me. And when Jesus says, repent and believe, in verse 15, he's not saying, repent and believe if you fancy it, or repent and believe when you get round to it. He's saying, repent and believe now. And Jesus has an authority, which again is drawn out in verse 16 to 20. So the way this is written, verse 16 to 20 is serving verses 14 and 15. And what, what's happening in verse, a casual reading in verse 16 to 20 would make it look like these two brothers, two sets of brothers, were somehow heroes or had some great role in following Jesus and being obedient to him. But Mark chapter 1 isn't about that. Mark chapter 1 is about Jesus' authority. That's why this section is sandwiched by Jesus doing these things. He, he cleanses lepers. He, he drives out demons. Jesus is the one with the power. And it's Jesus' call to these brothers which is effective. That's why they leave everything. That's why it doesn't make any sense. It's not that they're somehow magically better than the rest of us. And what I want to say is this morning, that gives me comfort. It gives me comfort because I, as I stand here with nothing about myself, my comfort is that it was Jesus, it was Jesus' authority which called me. If I was reliant on having done something particularly great, 
I'd be in trouble. The second thing we just need to note, and this, I'm going to make this a small point, but Jesus' kingship, it's tempting, I think, if you're not a Christian this morning, to think that Jesus' kingship is some kind of option. But whether or not you believe that Jesus is king or not doesn't change the fact that he is king. And Jesus doesn't say in verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel or be agnostic or be undecided. Because people say to me, and maybe they say this to you too if you're a Christian, they say, you know, I don't believe, I'm not sure whether I believe a gospel, but you know, I don't really reject it either. As if there's somehow three camps, you know, believe a gospel, don't repent and believe, and then there's some cheat code in the middle which kind of covers them both off where you undecided. It's not there, right? It's not there. And on that final day, one of the things I've noticed actually while reading Mark, chapter, studying this passage, is Jesus isn't who we always think he is. And there's a danger that we read this and we think, meek, mild Jesus who looks after everyone. And for sure Jesus is caring, for sure Jesus is loving, but he's not soft. You don't want to be on the wrong side of him. This is a Jesus who's got the power to cast out demons with a word. You don't want to be sat... If you think you're going to stand there on the final day and blag him, I don't know where you come up with that idea from, because it's not in here. Yeah, I think, as we close, we just let's circle back to the beginning. So... So we know following Jesus isn't like, it's not like support, I mean, I don't mean it's a bad way, it's not like supporting everything, it's not like going through a relegation battle, right? It's like a sticky tyre in a championship winning season, because it feels difficult, and it feels, it feels hard, but actually, we're winning. And we have to remember that the, you know, when, when we look at Mark chapter 1, there's these examples of what a sticky tar looks like. For John the Baptist, you know, the greatest prophet who ever lived about, his sticky tire was going into prison. And he died in prison. I won't tell you, how he, if you want me to ask me afterwards, he didn't have a very nice way of dying either. But now, where is he? Where will he be for the rest of eternity? Um, Gonley, you tell me. Yes. He's in the eternal kingdom. And it won't matter to him now, that sticky tyre. Just as Max Verstappen, when he wins the World Championship, won't be worried about the two, three extra seconds. And the truth is, the sticky tyre length is different for all of us, right? And for the disciples, you know, we've got Simon and Andrew, James and John, they couldn't have known what the future would hold. But after Jesus had been resurrected from heaven, those disciples, they died, they suffered Many of them in prison, tortured for the gospel. But for us, if we say their sticky tires are 10 seconds, for many of us, our sticky tires probably maybe two or three seconds. But they're still sticky tires. And I thought, just as we close, I don't know what your sticky tires are. I'm not going to try and start listing out a load of sticky tires you had. I just thought I'll just mention a couple I've had as I've been a Christian. 
And they're not, the whole point is these aren't big sticky ties, right? These aren't really, I'm not going to stand here and tell you these are amazing forms of suffering I've had. I'm just going to say that's the whole point. They're not, but they're still real, right? So when I, I, I the first time I took being a Christian seriously, I don't know when I became a Christian, but the first time I took it seriously was the first term at university. And I remember being sat in my room on my own, lonely, and with not very much to do, whilst all my friends were out getting drunk and pursuing relationships in a way in which I couldn't pursue them. And that feels like a sticky tyre, right? That doesn't feel very victorious. I remember as I first started out work at getting my graduate job, and when you get a graduate job, it doesn't, you know, you think you go for uni, it never pays quite as much as you think it might. And at the time, house prices were going up 20% a year. And this isn't me bigging it up at all, but I, was, I had to make a decision that I was going to give a good chunk of my income to church, right, at that point. And God's blessed me very much since. I'm not, I'm not complaining, but I'm saying at that point, it meant I couldn't buy a house at the same time my colleagues could. And you trust God in that moment. Now, these are tiny things, right? And, you know, even, I don't know, I'll take one now, I... You know, everyone, all my um, accounting friends, they all live out, in, they live out in Cheshire, right, in these little lovely little villages. And they have a 15-minute drive to work. I drive two, three hours a day to, because all my work's in Manchester. And I come into a city riddled with crime, right? And I don't mean that against love, I just mean that is, <laughs> that's the nature of it, right? I don't think the houses aren't even any cheaper. Um, and I'm not complaining. I'm not. What I'm saying is these are tiny things. They're like, you know, that's one second for a sticky tyre, right? I'm not saying, but what I'm saying is that's the whole point. They are small things. It's not imprisonment. But they are sticky tyres. And that's what we have to live with. I think, what I'm trying to say is, it feels like, it might be, we might be championship winning battle, but it feels like, for me at least, it often feels like relegation feels like a relegation battle. It doesn't look... I don't think anyone's going to look at my life and think, wow, that's someone who's really winning. And yet, in that Christian battle where things aren't quite going right, got to remember, we're not actually facing relegation at all. We're winning a huge victory because of Jesus. Let me pray to finish. Dear Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus has come and he has giving us a huge victory. Thank you that your kingdom is here. And even though it doesn't feel like it, it is here and it is real. Amen.